Okay, our Bible reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 to 62, verse 7, on page 122. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, of planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendor, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast." Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You'll be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will be will bestow. You will be crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hebzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Well, thanks, Bing, uh, and thanks, Bob the Bible Bird, for uh, chirping in as uh, we heard our reading uh, this morning, getting more vocal and participatory in our service week by week. Well, if we haven't met, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the pastors uh, part-time here at Trinity Church Tonsley, 
And whether it's your first time with us or we've known each other for many years as brothers and sisters in Christ or anywhere in between, it's really great to have you with us here today. We're continuing our look at the book of Isaiah, concluding next Sunday. And of all the sermons of the series, last week's brought out the most feedback and reflection, uh, which I think was really encouraging. As Isaiah challenged the pictures of Jesus we hold, painting the final portrait of him as the warrior king, who in great strength brings not only salvation to the far ends of the world, but also God's justice to the ends of the earth, exacting God's vengeance on all who oppose him, which is really, if we face it, a deeply challenging idea and it challenges any sort of simplistic view of Jesus that we may have. So whether you're considering Jesus for the first time or have followed him for many decades, it's confronting for us all, including Bob. (laughs) Uh, We introduced this picture of Warrior King Jesus last week. And if you missed it, our sermons are always online by mid-afternoon every Monday on our website, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And it's great to be in the habit of keeping up with the series. Bob, you can follow along online. (laughs) Uh, when you miss it. Uh, Such a great start. Um, The payoff we get for diving deep into the less challenging and more uh, less uh, popular parts of God's Word is that it develops before us, I think, a deeper, more complex, richer, more challenging and more beautiful picture of who Jesus is, what He has done and will do for us, as we place our trust in him, which in turn, I think, speaks to our identity as dearly loved children of God growing and developing in godly passions, changing what we love, what we give ourselves to, and the very course of our lives. So with that goal in mind, let's deepen our picture of Jesus today together, and it'd be great to have your Bibles open to our reading from Isaiah 61, which you'll find on page 1122 of the Bibles on your seats. Now, the first verse and a half of today's reading is one of the more famous parts of Isaiah, courtesy of it being the very passage Jesus used to announce himself at the start of his ministry. So after being tested in the desert for 40 days, Jesus returned to Galilee, as we're told, in the power of the Spirit, teaching, and his fame spread. And on the Sabbath, he heads into the synagogue, as was his habit, and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he scrolled it up and down and turned to this exact spot in Isaiah 61. He read it out as they'd been doing for centuries on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And as recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus then rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could have heard a sandal being unbuckled and Jesus breaks the silence by saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, announcing himself to the world as the one Isaiah spoke of so long ago. Yet if you read Luke chapter 4 and then flick back to Isaiah 61, you'll notice that Jesus stops at a very particular point. 
reading out that by the Spirit, God anoints Jesus to do all the many things in verse 1, proclaiming good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, uh, rearranging Isaiah's words a little, but concluding with line 1 of verse 2 that he's been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus is working off the, the Jewish kind of custom of the Jubilee year where this kind of this year of God's favour being there, debts were forgiven, slaves were freed, uh, forgiveness, joy and blessing pretty much flowed across all aspects of the life of the people of God. And Jesus is saying, this is the era I'm kicking off today, quoting Isaiah 61 in the little Jewish synagogue in, Ma in Nazareth. It's this image of Jesus and his ministry that we quite rightly love sounds great but notice as we look back on where uh, Jesus is quoting from, from what Jesus didn't read out I'll read it from verse 1 so you can get the context from Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's where Jesus stops. But this is where Isaiah continues to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Uh, someone asked last week on the SMS question line, uh, as we introduce this picture of this day of God's vengeance, this warrior king picture of Jesus that we rarely look at. Is this warrior king sort of outpouring of his wrath? Is it a past event? Is it a present or a future event? And I said, well, I'll answer it next week. Because I think Jesus' use of Isaiah 61 shows us pretty clear that he was saying, now a time is beginning that is all about proclaiming good news and it's a time where God's favour can be found. It's still that time today. Yet Isaiah tells us that there will come a day, yet future for us still, when Jesus will bring both salvation to those who wait upon him, along with the vengeance of God. Now we think, how can those two ideas go together? Yet what does Isaiah tell us will be the outcome of this? Verse 2, the outcome of this salvation, this year of the Lord's favour and the vengeance of our God coming is, verse 2, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It never really occurred to me this week, until this week, that as Jesus preaches his Sermon on the Mount, that he'll bring blessing to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn, those who are persecuted for his name's sake, that part of the way he'll do that is through bringing justice and the vengeance of God upon his enemies. Yet that is Isaiah's very challenging picture for us. Now, quite rightly, we're very concerned about this concept of vengeance. And to be honest, I'd be a little bit worried if you weren't. 
But when brought about by sinful human beings' version of vengeance, which is the only thing we experience, well, our reaction, our vengeance is so often disproportionate. It's unjust because we don't have all the information at hand. It's ugly because it comes from flawed people with mixed motives. And it forms in our world an endless cycle of retaliation and revenge, which we hate. Which is why God strictly forbids vengeance in the Christian life. Only God can bring justice finally, perfectly, fairly, as a conclusion to our world's problems, not as a part of them. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Yet we still really struggle with vengeance being a good thing. And I think a big part of that is that most of us haven't suffered many of our world's major injustices, which is a great blessing if we haven't. So I was reading the news this week and it struck me that uh, there was a report out from an Australian uh, philanthropic group that showed the number of people entrapped in forced labour, modern slavery, has risen by 9 million in our world in the last five years, up to 28 million people entrapped in modern slavery. It rises to 50 million if you include those entrapped in forced marriages, both of which a person is unable to leave because of threats, violence and coercion. And that's the picture that was up on the BBC report uh, in the news this week. And when you run the numbers, that's one out of every 150 people on the planet and it's going up. We're roughly 150 people here today, so for each group of us, there's one person trapped in slavery. And if you are trapped in slavery, and it's often whole communities and families, if you saw your kids entrapped and brutalised in all forms of ways, the idea of someone coming with power to end that situation by bringing salvation to the oppressed justice and vengeance to the perpetrators to rid your community of that evil, well, it's pretty attractive if that's you. Isaiah fills out the picture for us that this is part of warrior King Jesus bringing good news to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives. Yet as we explored last week, our world's ills and injustices are not simply out there. We can't just draw up a hit list of bad guys to eliminate, to leave the rest of us living without issue or sin. We're all entangled in the world's ills, the jealousy, the self-protection, the critical spirit, the selfishness, the misuse of power. It's something that ensnares us all. So if God were to rid the world of its problems by force alone there wouldn't be a person left on the planet. Our protestations of innocence of being kind of good enough would be found to be without merit before a holy God who sees our hearts 
and the full consequences of our actions. Which is why Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Forgiveness that's free to us because the cost was borne by Jesus. I think um, we can, at a simplistic level, be a little casual about what happened that day as Jesus went to the cross for the sins of the world. I've heard many people say, well, you know, what's the big deal? Jesus knew he was going to be raised to life again. Many in our world have died horrible deaths, some say. Yet with a little more reflection on God's word, we know that Jesus had never sinned. That inner sense of shame, that sort of separation from God that we live with and, and think is normal, that internal battle that we all have and seek to quiet and pretend that isn't there, that doubt we have that God is for us. Jesus had never experienced any of that. Yet as he approached the cross, he identified with and bore the sins of the world upon his shoulders in a way that as God's wrath was poured out, the sky went black, the world shook, and he knew for the first time what it meant to be cut off from his heavenly Father, facing the full wrath of God. It's horrific. As Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, which we saw a few weeks back, and I'll just pop this on the screen, thanks, Brianna. We read, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Just, I can't quite imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to bear the sins of the world upon his shoulders, feel the undiluted wrath of God against them, something we've never experienced. We, of course, read that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such was the, the chasm between God the Father and God the Son in Christ. Such was his distress. But... Through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, Jesus can and still does proclaim this day, now is the time of the Lord's favour. Free forgiveness is on offer for all, blessing, joy, eternal favour. Freedom from the much deeper spiritual blindness is on offer. Freedom from our slavery to sin and its due penalty is proclaimed. Yet God's justice, his vengeance, is perfect. It's measured, it's fair, and alongside his freely given salvation, which will reach the end of the earth, so all people everywhere will have a choice. And the choice is, will I cling to this idea I can reject the creator God who gives us all good things and continue to ignore him? Will I cling to the idea that I'm one of the good guys and could stand before a holy God kind of if he is there. Or maybe, as so many people express today, or, you know, when I meet God, I'll give him a piece of my mind. 
It will melt away in an instant, that attitude. Or will we accept that a powerful saviour is needed to deflect the right judgment of God away from us onto Christ as he stood in our place, as Jesus did, as he bore God's wrath upon the cross so that he could declare that now is the time of God's favour with forgiveness from sin, joy, blessing, security, belonging, and eternal life freely available to anyone on the planet. It is the decision to either let God's justice fall on Jesus' shoulders or to let it remain on ours in an act of defiance in light of a gracious offer. Now, if you're checking out who Jesus is, a, is today, as a church, we realise this raises many questions. And to be honest, it stings our pride, our ego. It exposes the fragility of our carefully constructed self-image. Yet let me encourage you, as someone who has led many people through this moment, it's a pain worth going through. Like a patient who finally goes to the doctor to address a nagging pain, only to find out that the diagnosis is far worse than you expected, yet also hears from the great physician that a powerful and a precious remedy is available. Now is the year of the Lord's favour. If that's you, a great next step would be to join us at our next Life Series. We've got one starting next month. And it's a perfect place to dive deep into this, to ask any question you like and explore the precious remedy that Jesus offers. Because I think verse 3 acknowledges a reality for us all. We tell each other that happiness should be our default position, and we pretend that grief, mourning and despair are an anomaly in our world. But not only do death, disease and our very minds sometimes wage war against us, so many in our world today suffer daily as the default. And for us, work takes the best of our energy and time. Relationships, even with people that you love and are committed to, can be hard, hard work. You can either try and wash away our world's pains with our kind of addictive amusements, consumerism, the next endorphin-evoking experience. Yet we find in them only temporary relief as you sink deeper. And you can either go down that path or you can go deep with God growing in trust in the promises of our Saviour. Verses 4 to 7 of Isaiah 61 would have spoken powerfully to Isaiah's first hearers, a, a nation in exile, oppressed, looking for a blessing. They speak to us as a people longing for the promise of everlasting joy, as verse 7 concludes. Read with me from verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice... I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord 
has blessed. Now, prophecy always has an end of all things, time to complete fulfilment edge to it, yet it always has something to say for the present too. God has and continues to deliver on this promise as people from all nations come into his one worldwide church today. Despite uh, organised religion being on the nose among our world's influencers, movie stars and media commentators, if people know a grace-driven, gospel-hearted, humble Christian who has the confidence of not needing to fear what our world fears, there is often a very deep unspoken respect and attraction to the person who rejoices in and praises God adopting God's very practical wisdom and who shows grace in their relationships, even when under fire. As Jesus builds his church today, God is delivering on Isaiah's promise of verse 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and, garden, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And he's doing that as he builds his church around the world today. As the people of God, made right by our Saviour, growing into that righteousness and developing lives of praise before our world, we are living as a people who display to the world that there is a solution to our world's despair, mourning and grief. And that thanks to our Saviour King, and our warrior King Jesus, a time is coming when such ills will plague us no more. Instead of covering over our issues and pain with the band-aid of consumerism and our narcotic amusements, we can go deep with God instead. And as we look at Isaiah 62 briefly, it begins with one who will not keep silent or remain quiet until this promised salvation comes. I take it the, the I referred to here is God's kingly, suffering and warrior servant speaking at this point, Jesus, whose word will continue to go out, will not be silenced across the world without letting up for a moment until this promised salvation comes. A beautiful image is again built of uh, not only what this will look like, but what it will feel like to be there as God rejoices over his people. Yet verses 6 and 7 of chapter 62 show us that for now, we have a job to do. Read with me from verse 6 as God instructs his people in Isaiah's day and our day as God's church. As Isaiah says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes the, her the praise of the earth. God's people are a people waiting. People waiting not for something, but for someone. With watchmen posted, who, like God's servant, will not be silent, proclaiming God's word and speaking of the day when God's salvation 
and judgment will wash across our world. There's an image there of, people, of, of the people of God giving him no rest as we call upon him. A great rallying cry to be a people petitioning God through our prayers for the grace of his salvation to ring out as we proclaim this time where the Lord's favour can be found. I think it's quite a turn of phrase from Isaiah that we are to never rest from calling upon the Lord and giving him no rest due to the constancy of our prayers. And now that we've understood this kind of time that we're waiting with watchmen set, it's in this context, I think we're now ready to hear that one day, on the horizon, one man alone will appear and the watchman will cry out. We read of him in Isaiah 63, and I'll put the first four verses up on screen. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, Isaiah says, with garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, is the response. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. There are those two ideas woven together in a final and one of the most evocative images. Challenging one. On that day, the three portraits Isaiah paints across his book about the one we now know as Jesus, will come together as one. Jesus as royal king, coming to rule with justice and fairness. As the servant king, who has suffered great trial on behalf of his people, so that forgiveness can be offered to all. And to all across the robe who have called on him, who long for justice, who long for oppression to cease, and, to dis and for despair to be washed away from our world, warrior King Jesus comes proclaiming victory over all forms of evil, over every stubborn and rebellious heart, every injustice woven into the fabric of our world, removed in his wrath and bringing gladness, comfort, beauty, joy and praise in their place permanently for all who are his. It is this deeper, more complex, more beautiful picture of Jesus that develops, I think, in us a deeper, more complex, more beautiful church, which is why we try and preach from all corners of the Bible. What does this deeper, more vibrant, more beautiful church look like? Well, let me give you just three brief ways I think Isaiah calls us into more depth together, more complexity, more beauty. In our relationship kind of up 
as we relate to God, it calls us to be unceasing, to give the Lord no rest as we call for his message of salvation to go out, to offer ourselves and to ask for God's enablement to share this great news of Jesus. That because the suffering servant Jesus, who went to the cross for the sins of the world, now we proclaim it is the time of the Lord's favour. I've seen in practice and am reminded afresh that we should give ourselves rest and give God no rest in asking this from him. In our relationships together, the in dimension, up to God, in together, I would really like to turn up the heat in our pursuit of both right and wise living fed by the wisdom of God enabled by his spirit. Because firstly, that's good in right, but also for the testimony that wise, godly living proclaims to our world as we share the gospel. It's been my reflection of late that as a network of churches, we've laid the right foundation with our preaching of the Bible, but so often leave our households to kind of draw it all together for themselves, what that wise and godly sort of parenting, singleness, retirement, generosity, hospitality, marriage looks like in practice. And that's a non-exhaustive list, by the way, just a few thoughts. I'd really love to develop together over, say, the next 10 years, a variety of resources and teams and people committed to the task, a more extensive set of resources, relationships, and sort of curriculum of events that help us grow in all aspects of discipleship together. And we've committed as a team to make a small start on that next year. So up, unceasing in prayer, in with greater depth in our relationships and our commitment to godly and wise living. And as we look out, we have to avoid contentment and patterns of behaviour that limit the effectiveness of our mission. The average church in Australia is 75 and shrinking, and statistically, only a very small handful of churches in our country and in the Trinity Network and in our city grow beyond 150 and sustain it, which happens to be pretty much the exact size of this church and our major sending partner, Colonel Light Gardens, at the moment. So for the sake of mission... We have to know that we're not going to be able to get to know everyone at church if we're going to keep welcoming new people in. We have to have the mindset of having a deeper circle of relationships with a few and serve the whole in teams together. We want to look out for each other and keep each other on the road, but we have to cultivate that spirit of discontentment and feel the depth of pain of the hundreds of thousands of people who live within a 10-minute drive of this place who do not know the Lord's salvation freely offered and the wrath of the coming warrior king against every form of evil and rebellion. I think it's this whole picture of Jesus that shakes us out of this propensity for contentment to kind of think, oh, there seem to be people here, kids' ministry's happening, the coffee's good, the music's great. We need to cultivate that spirit of discontentment as we look out 
and keep looking to share the great news of Jesus instead of turning that energy to soaking up every drop of each other's needs and griefs. To see this deeper, more complex, more beautiful church continue to develop under God's hand, we will need to count the cost. As I said a few times last week, which stirred up some feedback as well, we cannot simply have the expectation that we can take all that this world offers us and this picture of this deeper, more complex, more beautiful church. We will have to say no to things that we love. We will need to help each other say no to sin's enticements together too so that our righteousness and praise spring up before a watching world that does look on and wonder, do we have a solution to this world's griefs and pain and despair? It's our final week next week, but for now, I'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, just the depth and complexity that you bring us in Isaiah of who Jesus is and what he comes for. We thank you for the beauty of this picture of salvation going to the ends of the earth, the far islands, and being offered to all. And please help us to wrestle with this idea that discomforts us, this idea of justice and vengeance also stretching out across the globe. Please help us to trust in your character, your fairness, your rightness, your justice, which is perfect as people who have only experienced a, a form of it which is uh, not beautiful but ugly uh, instead. Please help us, please help this um, more complex picture of our Saviour Jesus spur us on uh, to a, a deeper, more thoughtful uh, church experience together, a greater uh, sense of commitment to praying to you unceasingly, to invest in each other deeply and to stir up a spirit of discontentment as we look out and always seeking to find ways to share the good news of Jesus with many. Please help us in this task. Please enable us. We're entirely dependent upon you for it. And we thank you for your challenging yet encouraging word to us today. We thank you so much that Jesus is not only uh, one uh, that can save us personally, uh, but your plan for him is to right uh, all the injustices and evils of this world through him. We thank you for your commitment to this world and we thank you for the offer of salvation you hold out to it. Please enable us to play our part uh, and to be those people who uh, grow in our righteousness and praise of you uh, so that as a watching world looks on, they see a people who know the solution to our world's problems. And it's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.